Welcome to C3 Church, Queens Beach. We believe Jesus Christ gives life to the full and we are called to live it and share it. We pray you enjoyed this message today. So lovely to worship. Thanks, Ben, and thanks to, for the team. They're wonderful. Let's take a seat. You know, earlier Nicole welcomed me here and I thought, well, in a sense, I don't really need a welcome. And I said earlier... Um, this is family, and I got reminded, well, it's more than just family. It's, we really are family here, and it's lovely to have all of my family here and our extended family with George and Lotta, and uh, great to see Ben. I thought, oh, good to see Ben again. I taught his son last semester, and his uh, son kind of entertained me in class. I mean, he did, he did learn, but um, it was, it's, uh, so it is, it's great to get up here, and it's great to sort of um, be back in the place and to enjoy the time to come um, to be here. So... The title of my message, I'm not sure if you can see it, if it's up on the screen, but it's called Up the Creek Without a Paddle. And you thought, well, okay, what's this guy on about? And I thought, well, when Nicole gave us the opportunity and said, uh, Alan, can you speak um, this week? And I said, sure. It kind of fitted with me. Well, I'll talk a little bit about something that's been a passion of mine for many, many years, and that's, of course, paddling. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's something that's, I guess, been passed down from the generations. It came to me right from actually at school. I built my first kayak at school when I was um, probably about year 10. And so constructed my own kayak out of plywood and then went off and, and started to learn how to paddle. And then it's gone from there to then teaching kayaking. So I've taught kayaking at Scripture Union camps um, quite a few years ago and then currently teaching kayaking um, with our cadet unit at school at, at Kingsway. So it's something that I guess I've been passionate about for a long time and something that I've been keen to, to pass on to others. But when we teach paddling, you know, there's something that's really important. You need to teach how to use the paddle. So I actually brought my paddle here today. There we go. So there's my paddle, and it's a breakdown paddle. And it's designed, of course, so we can stick it together, like undo the catch, put it together, and I can line it up at the right thing, which is about five and about that level. And so what I would then do is I teach the students how to use the paddle. Okay, where to, to put it in. And I should get my daughter here, because she's much better at this than me. Where to put it into the water, how to pull it through, how to hold it. You really need to know how to use the paddle. So that's something that we teach um, everyone. Before we even get into the boat, if they've never been in a boat before, we need to learn how to use that paddle. And so that's what um, we do to start. Because it's incredibly important. If you don't use the paddle, you're not going to um, have any forward motion. It's something that gives us that forward direction. It gives us the sense of stability because, man, for me, anyway, I use it an awful lot to provide the stability that I need. It gives a sense of direction. Without pulling that paddle through the water, you're not going to have the forward motion. You're not going to be able to turn. You're not going to be able to avoid obstacles. You're just going to go wherever the flow of the river or the ocean or the waves is going to take you. So that's the paddle. So. Going way back, I mentioned that I built my first kayak at school in, in uh, about year 10. I then built another one in about, I think it was about 20 or 21. 
And I still have that kayak. I still actually use that kayak. Um, well, I won't tell you how many years later, but it's quite a while. And um, that kayak has been something very, very special to me and something that I really enjoy. And so when I came over here to Perth, I got a lot more involved in, in kayaking. And I went into the Avon Descent. And in the first Avon Descent we went for, we were training. And training for that event, first time down the, well, I'd been down the Avon a few times in, in training, but the week before the race, we thought we'll do a whole valley run. So we got on our boat, and it was called Long John, Long John 2. It was a double kayak. And very quickly we found out that kayaks and rocks, when you've got a very long kayak, about six and a half metres, don't actually meet that well. So the current was pushing us one way, we tried to paddle the other way, a big rock in the middle, and suddenly we wrapped our kayak right around the rock. And I'm in the back of the kayak, and sadly for me, I knew that I couldn't get out of that thing. Even using the paddle, trying to roll up or anything, I, I was stuck, and I knew it. I didn't panic, but my mate in the front, thankfully, knew. He, he looks around, tries to, well, where's Al? Realises I'm upside down and threw the boat over the top of the rock, and that freed me and I was able to get out. So, yeah, a little bit scary, so sometimes kayaking can be a little bit scary. I even took Veronica down the rapids. Um, Veronica likes kayaking, but she only likes the, the faster water, and... Um, we made it all the way down through Sid's Rapids, if anyone's been on the, um, on the Avon, that's a great rapid, down through Walyunga and down to Bells, which is one of the major rapids and the last one in the river as you're coming down. And we got right through Bells until we came to the end and, well, the end of the rapid, not the end of us, and uh, unfortunately we met a tree. And um, I'd actually impressed upon Veronica, look, whatever happens, sweetie, um, just hold on to your paddle. And so she did, as the boat went upside down and Veronica ended up the tree and I'm floating off down, down the stream and I looked up and I said, ah, sweetie, you can come down now because she's out of the tree, but she still had the paddle. So she learned, that was good. She did very well. Um, and so I raced the Avon a number of times and probably the 10th time I did it was one of the most special times and that was of course racing with Jordan. And uh, we had a great time as well but unfortunately again it, it, sometimes these surf skis get in your way and I'd said to Jordan, look, look back off, we're not going to go through SIDS till the uh, boats are out of the way, the surf skis, they always wipe out. So we waited and waited and then we thought okay they should be right now so off we went. Down there two of them got stuck. I tried to avoid them and of course we went into a rock and I did, I lost my paddle, that was it. No paddle, um, but thankfully we had a breakdown paddle inside the boat, we wiped out, we thought we not only lost our paddle but lost the boat as well, but we managed to ex extricate the boat, get the uh, breakdown paddle out of it and we finished the race, so that was fantastic and one of the most wonderful opportunities to race it with Jordan. And of course our daughter Caitlin has um, gone on with her paddling. She was just in the state championships yesterday um, for sprint kayaking and she's really gone on to um, represent Australia and it's been a wonderful privilege to see her picking up the passion for paddling. But there should be one little photo of our family that I'd love to show you because not only have we passed on the passion for um, our family but there's a little fellow who's over there I believe and there's his little paddle. So. This is Malachi's paddle and um, he's learning to kayak as you can see. Um, he's actually even got his own little boat because we had a friend who was getting rid of a guppy kayak and um, she, the, she said, yeah, you can take the boat. So Malachi's got his own little boat which he has to go and put with granddad's boats because he knows where it goes. So that's uh, Malachi's paddle and we're passing on, hopefully, that passion for paddling. So why do I mention it? Well, 
to me, kayaking, has, there's a lot of similarities with our Christian walk when we think about paddling. I kind of already alluded to that. It provides that sense of forward motion. It provides a sense of direction of being able to get around um, obstacles. It is something on the Christian journey. I don't want anyone to have that experience of being up the creek without a paddle because that paddle gives us the stability, the direction, the impetus, the momentum that we really need. So while we're moving forward, you know, with your paddle, you can turn. You're in control. You can actually use the current in the river. I don't know if anyone's had that experience, but you can actually paddle upstream. You can cross over the stream if you're in control with your paddle in the water. But if you don't have your paddle, very quickly, as we discovered, you can go smacking into rocks, and that's, uh, that's not a great thing to do. So you can use it to brace. I've certainly done that a lot. Um, you can even use it to roll up which is when you finally do blow it and you're upside down, yes, you can roll back up. And so also in paddling, there's usually a goal. We're setting out somewhere, whether it's a sprint race of 200 to 1,000 metres, whether it's a race from um, Rottnest over to Sorrento, something I did just in November and um, really enjoyed that, or whether it's race the Avon Descent, you know, about 130 kilometres over a couple of days. There's a goal and you want to go and achieve that goal. So, in speaking today, and Nicole's already mentioned it, and Nicole didn't actually really know what I was going to speak about, but her introduction just fitted in so beautifully. You know, Steve said, look, Nicole, Steve knew what I was going to be on about today, but he's, um, Nicole didn't, and yet Nicole's introduction so clearly fitted with what I wanted to talk about today. And that's the, it's the start of the year, 2019, a fresh start, a new beginning, and Often in those new beginnings, you know, we, we, we get all fired up. You know, I want to achieve this, or I believe God wants me to do this. And I'll come back to it in a moment, but they say that at the 12th of January, which is actually, I think, the date that Nicole asked me, the 12th of January is critically important. So remind me if I forget to come back to why the 12th of January is important. And in looking at it, having been asked, I thought, okay, it's the start of a, a new year, Someone that is an absolute Bible hero of mine is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, no, he's not the shortest man in the Bible. I think that was Zacchaeus, yeah, Nehemiah. But um, he's a man, okay, some people go, that's good. Um, he's a man of incredible stature. He really is. He, he's one of my heroes of the Bible because he's someone that saw a need and he met the need. So a couple of the Bible readings are quite long, but I'll try and um, not just whip through them because there's so much in them. And I'd like to read some of those passages now. And the first one is Nehemiah's prayer, and that is in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. So if you're following it on a new device, or it should be on the screen as well, um, we can follow on the words. And so Nehemiah says in um, chapter 1, so he writes the book, by the way. So the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and distress, in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, 
Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites. Now I've emphasized the we. Nehemiah puts himself in the picture. He says, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for me. I, it's, this is me as well. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, this always amazes me. We see this in the Bible, and they say they're reminding God. Well, yeah, God knows what he said. But he coming back and said, well, God, remember what you said. And it's kind of a good thing for us to do. We can actually not just remind ourselves. We don't really need to remind God, but it's great if we go through his promises and, and are reminded of them. So he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, as in Nehemiah, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king so he had an important position the cupbearer someone who brought the wine to the king i guess someone who would bear the brunt if that wine was poisoned or if something had gone wrong with it we're talking about a very responsible position we're talking about someone who is an exile so we're not not from the land king artaxerxes persia they've taken over and these people are not the people of his land. Yet, he's risen to a very high position as someone who's a foreigner. Quite interesting. So Nehemiah has this incredible position, and he thinks about it. He's distressed. He puts himself in the situation. How can I be happy when I know, and I mourned and wept, and I, I prayed, and I, I probably fasted for months you might think, well, how long did it take? It seems like it goes straight through. But we realise in, in the next um, chapter, it says in the month of Nisan, well, it seems like a, a time of four months goes past. He hears the news. Four months later, he puts his plan into action and goes and talks to the king. He was a man of prayer. He didn't just say, well, okay, it's not going to affect me. I've actually got a pretty privileged position. He actually was a man of high wealth, probably, high influence and power but then he hears the news of where his ancestors are buried and he cannot i guess just discard that and say well that's not going to affect me it affected him deeply and he wept and he prayed so then he did something about it after contemplating all this time after thinking about it he then approaches the king and i think the first point that i'd like to make is that you know we need to be prayerful and we need to be contemplative to work out, well, what does God want us to do in 2019? Commit that to God in prayer and to contemplate what he would have us do. And then 
to be intentional about it. And I believe that Nehemiah, he comes up with a plan and he puts it into place. So in the first part of chapter 2, he comes to the king and he's never been sad in the king's presence. So I'll just read a few verses from chapter 2. It says, in the month of Nisan, and I don't think that's a quote to the Japanese car maker, but I don't know. Um, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? And I thought, that's interesting. Somehow I think he's been able to keep it sort of in, inside him for four months. And then he says, okay, I'm going to be sad. And he is. This can be nothing, the king says, but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, well, I was very much afraid. I mean, he could have lost his head. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Well, that's a good place to start, I think. Why should my face not look sad when the city, when the city where my ancestor buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And I'm thinking, okay, he's put it on the line. And the king said to me, well, what is it you want? Then I prayed again. Again, we hear prayer. And if you read Nehemiah, by the way, look at all the prayers. It's really quite interesting. I'm not going to go through them all today, but really fascinating to see when and how he prays. So he said, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. And I believe that in that four-month period, I mean, it doesn't say it, so I guess I'm surmising, but... I believe he came up with the plan in that time of prayer and contemplation. So he says, Then I pray to the God of heaven, I answered the king. Well, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Well, then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, Well, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And then this is what I love. Here we have a foreign power in control of it, taken over, taken over another country. And somehow Nehemiah convinces a foreign king to implement a plan to rescue a people. And I think that's incredible. So let's read what it says. I also said to him, well, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And there's more. May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. So, okay, he's got quite a list of things here that he's looking to try and implement. And he just lays it out. And I'm thinking, wow, he's asking this foreign king to, to help. And then he goes on, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests not only for time off, but all the stuff that he needed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent something he didn't ask for, protection. He says, look, I'll send you army officers. And even the cavalry um, went with him. And so we see the planning that Nehemiah put into place. But straight away... We've, we understand that there was opposition because the 10th verse says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So straight away we, we see the plan coming into action 
and we realise that there's going to be opposition. And sometimes that's like that for us as well. We might have the plan and we think, God, this is what you want me to do, and we step out into that plan, and somehow, like we face in the river, the obstacles come in the way, and we can get smashed on them unless we're really maintaining that forward momentum. So we know that there was opposition to Nehemiah's plan. It came there. So what steps did he put in place? Well, first of all, he got all that he needed. He got even more, more in the bargain. So he sets off on the journey and he gets to Jerusalem. But he doesn't spill the beans right away. Because what he does is he goes out on his own to inspect the walls. And I thought, that's interesting. He hadn't told anyone yet what he was going to do. He said, I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night, sorry, with a few others. So he did take someone with him. But I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So he's not trying to make any sort of fuss right away. He's not telling people right away, this is what my plan is, even though he'd arrived with, I guess, all this stuff and protection and everything. So he goes out and he surveys the land, and that's part of implementing his plan. He knows what he needs to do, so he's putting in place what he wants and, and needs. He surveys the land. Well, then once he gets the idea of what he's going to do, how many gates need to be fixed up, where the wall's going to need um, doing, he then implements the plan. He starts to tell people, well, this is what I believe we're going to do. And what I thought was really interesting, I'll just read you the verse. He said, I also told them about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me after he told them that this is what I sh we should be doing. And so the reply is, well, let's start rebuilding. So he's able to enthuse the people and say, this is what we want to do. God is with me. The king has given me all this stuff. Now let's get on and do the work. And so they do. And he enthused, enthused the people. He said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. He put in place all the logistics. I mean, to me, he must have been like an army general. I, I can't imagine it any other way that he knew that we had to provide protection. He knew we had to get the materials. He knew that we had to get different people working in different places. And as you go reading through Nehemiah, you'll see that they worked on different gates. And it's kind of repetitive, actually. You'll read it and it sounds exactly the same. The different gates were um, put together by different groups. And so he organised all this. So I, I'm just in awe that he was able to organise such an incredible project of rebuilding these walls and enthusing everyone and then overcoming the opposition. Because after they said, let's begin the work, straight away. But then Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And of course, no, they're not rebelling against the king. The king has actually given them all the materials that they needed to go and do the task. I think quite incredible. So he was able to delegate tasks, organise people, he was ready for opposition, um, he was realistic, he dealt with the opposition as it came, and um, when things weren't happening quick enough, they held on to the faith that, yes, we'd be able to get this through. He overcame the, cha the challenges, he had problems, he had difficulties. I mean, some of them were quite incredible. As he was going through, they, they realised, hang on, some of these um, Israelites are paying taxes. They're paying interest to others who've kind of exploited them, their own people. He called them all together and said, hey guys, this is not on. And he, he was able to convince people who were basically going to lose money to say, okay, we need to forgive the debt. We need to be able to work together. 
So, I mean, try and get people out of an income stream. It's not easy. And yet he was able to convince them to do that. So he had all these incredible challenges, opposition, social justice issues, taxes, all of that to deal with. And he did it. He persisted with the task. So much so that I, I actually took a step back and thought, no, that can't be true. He actually records 52 days after getting there and starting, they completed the wall. I mean, we're talking about a pretty quick rebuilding of something that was broken down. Yes, he had a lot of people to help. Yes, he had protection. But as he was doing it, you, you read through Nehemiah and you realise because everyone was trying to attack them, he had people working in shifts. So some people were working on the wall and other people were standing behind ready to um, defend them. Or they would be working, one hand with a sword, one hand to do the work. Quite incredible how he organised it all. He persisted. Never, you know, for us, it can be easy to give up. We can become despondent. And I think Nehemiah gives us an example of someone who didn't give up. He just faced the challenges as they came. And I, I love that song that we sang just before. And I thought, even in the middle of the storm, we can sing. Well, my, I can't dance, but you can sing, we can dance, we can shout for joy. And I thought, that's incredible. When we put our focus onto God, he's the one that we can, can, really can focus on and helps us to get through the problems and obstacles and difficulties along the way. So then with Nehemiah, we see the realisation of his intention. And I didn't really say this at the start, but I believe that his intention was to see people worshipping God in security and in peace. And so I'll just read a quick passage from Nehemiah chapter 8. And in that passage, which um, should come up, we see what he really was on about. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra reads the law. He says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, and get this, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. So not, no short uh, church services here. Okay, we've we got a service from daybreak till noon. Okay, maybe, what, six, seven hours? I don't know. And quite a while. But then he goes on. He, he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high platform built for the occasion. And there were lots of people beside him. He opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! They bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're in freedom. They're able to worship because they have the walls protecting them. And so that's the deeper vision that I believe that Nehemiah had. Sure, he put in place all these goals to rebuild the walls, but I think his deeper mission and vision was that he wanted to see people worshipping in freedom and in peace. And that's why I really like to see Nehemiah and what he can instruct us with. He's someone who put it all into place. He had a sense of what he wanted to do and then 
he was able to go through and meet all the obstacles, meet all the difficulties, and they were overcome so that people then could be worshipping in freedom. So I guess bringing it back to then to us, I don't want you to be left up the creek without a paddle. I definitely don't want that for, for 2019. So when we think about setting some goals, well, what, what goals? What can we learn from Nehemiah? Well, I believe that we can contemplate, think about it, saturate it with prayer. God, what do you want, what do you want me to do this year, 2019? It could be in our church life. What do you want me to do here at church? How can I be involved? Where, where can my gifts and abilities be used? It could be a, a spiritual goal. It might be to say, well, look, I want to read the Bible this year. I want to read right through it. Well, I'd suggest, well, hang on, let's start small. Whatever goals you set, start small so that you can achieve them. And reading the, reading the Bible in the whole year, sure, that's achievable. It might be to say, well, okay, I'm going to read certain parts of the Bible so I can achieve that success that I want. And me, I often suggest to people, well, read Mark's Gospel. Great place to start. Read right through Mark's Gospel. Read James about how we can live our life. Read, read people who inspire us like Nehemiah. Get, get some of that stuff into us so that we can understand, well, God, how do you want me to live in this world today? And, and something that can really help us is um, something that helped me many years ago, and they talk about smart goals, and I'll just very briefly um, go through it. But basically, if you Google it, look up smart goals, you'll find it specific, measurable, attainable, um, realistic, time-oriented. So you set those goals... And if you just use that SMART acronym, and there are many different ones that will come up, all, all using SMART and some out of ER for smarter, just work through them and say, well, God, what goals do you want me to set for 2019? Now, I mentioned before, and I'm glad I remembered it, the 12th of January. So on the 12th of January, apparently, some research by Strava, which is a, a social um, network for athletes, they came up with the idea that if you hadn't set in place your goals by the 12th of January, probably wasn't going to happen. And they, there's this New Year's resolutions, by the way, not necessarily goals, because I think if we're saturated by prayer and contemplating, I believe that God will help us to achieve the goals that we set. But we just come up with some random New Year's resolution. Apparently only about 8% get achieved. And if they haven't been started by the 12th of January, it's probably not going to happen. So what can we do to ensure that we're not one of those 92% who don't achieve the goal? Well, according to a couple of um, lecturers, one is uh, Marcelo Campos from Harvard Medical School, says writing down your goals can really help. So write it down. You can come back to it. I've actually done that because then you come back to it a week later or another week later and you, you revisit them, put them in your calendar and ding, up they come. Say, oh, how am I going with my goal? That can be something that really helps to write it down because we know what we're trying to achieve. So, um, she goes on to say there are a few questions. Why do you want to make the changes that you want to make? Answer, be able to answer that question. Is your goal concrete and measurable? Well, it sounds very much like the SMART acronym. What's your plan to achieve it? And who can support you? That's a critical one. They say if you can get someone to help you on the way, share the goal with someone else, it then increases your chance of actually achieving that goal incredibly. Nehemiah, he spilled the beans. People were enthused. They all worked together and were able to achieve the goal. And I thought the last one, this is coming from a secular author, she says, well, how will you celebrate your victories? Look at what Nehemiah did. Man, did they have some party. 
In fact, all the people wanted to go and cry and they were weeping and you know, putting dust on their heads and all sorts of stuff. And he said, no, no, go out. And he got them all to go and buy, I mean, you can read it in Nehemiah, but go and buy or get you know, the, the best sort of fruits and the best sort of meat and whatever and basically party. If you read it, you'll see that Nehemiah got everyone to celebrate because they had really come up with something incredible in rebuilding the wall. And the last thing this uh, article from Dr. Campos said, said, January the 1st is just a day in the calendar. You can reset your calendar every day for a fresh start. So if we don't achieve anything by the 1st of January, the 12th of January, or whatever date, reset the calendar. Okay, I'm going to try, with God's help, to achieve the goals that he wants me to achieve. So don't be despondent. Move forward with purpose through this year. Reset your year at any time. If you think, okay, I'm not really achieving this. Okay, reset, recharge, we're going to go. Be prayerful and seek God's guidance as you set the goals. And let him be the source of your direction. Be intentional about carrying out whatever God places on your heart so that you can live and so that you can live 2019 with a sense of focus a sense of direction, a sense of what you believe God wants you to achieve. So then be focused on God and focused on what God wants us to do. And then whatever happens, don't be someone who's left up the creek without a paddle. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do thank you for the example of Nehemiah. He's a man of incredible stature and a man of incredible ability. But he was someone who depended on you. He depended on you as he confessed his sins and confessed the sins of those around. And then he was able to put into place something that you put on into his heart. And then was able to celebrate an amazing, amazing victory. And we thank you for the deeper mission that he really wanted to see people worshipping again in freedom. And Father, that's our prayer too. We thank you for the freedom that we have to worship. And we pray that as we contemplate and as we, we consider what you would like us to do this year, the things that we want to achieve for, for you, the things that we might want to achieve for your church, the personal goals that we might have, the understandings you want us to develop, Oh, Father, I pray that you'll help us to set those goals and with your help, because we want to glorify you, I pray that you'll help us to achieve them every step of the way. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today on this podcast. We encourage you to let this word further help you live and share the life to the full that Jesus gives. If you want to check out more of our upcoming events, service times, locations, or to give online, head to c3hh.com.au forward slash give. 